Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Bi-Weekly Geopolitical Report podcast for May 9th, 2022. A world with at least two sharply divided political and economic groupings seems more and more likely as globalization retreats in the face of new trade, immigration, and political barriers. And the Ukraine war appears to be accelerating the process. Confluence market strategist Patrick Fearon Hernandez joins us today to discuss what this new world might look like and what investors should watch for. Patrick, Confluence has done a fascinating study to try to determine which countries may end up in which group, the one dominated by the United States or the one dominated by China, which includes Russia. What were some of the factors in your methodology? Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me on the program. Even though Confluence has been talking about deglobalization and global fracturing into different blocks for more than a decade, we really wanted this new project to be as specific and systematic as possible. As we thought deeply about how this fracturing is happening, we realized that one important determinant is simply any given country's formal military, economic, and political treaty relationships as they stand today. As countries interact with their treaty partners over time, they build a real comfort level with each other, and their officials gain an almost reflexive understanding of each other. Those relationships are hard to abandon, so there's a certain stickiness in bilateral relations. On top of that, we think countries with similar political and economic structures will tend to stay together. As they say, birds of a feather flock together, right? And finally, we look at how much a country relies on trade with China versus the U.S. But that's treated as just one part of the picture after current treaty relationships and political or economic similarities. So it's not as simple as democracies on one side and authoritarian governments on the other. No, it's more complex than that. When you look at how our methodology divides countries into different predicted blocks, the groupings all seem to make sense. But by using multiple criteria to assign countries to the different blocks, we get a sense of just how firmly they're in each camp. For example, a country may be pulled toward the U.S. block based on being a free market democracy, but it also may be pulled in the other direction because it's highly dependent on exports to China. I'm interested in how you weight these factors. Do you think economic interests can often overcome political and cultural differences between countries? I suspect they can. However, when you get to the violent cleavages of wartime, the political and cultural affinities between countries may take precedence. Note, for example, that as Western European countries face the threat of Russian aggression, they come around to the idea of closer integration with each other and with the U.S., even if it leads to some big economic costs like abandoning investments in Russia or foregoing Russian energy supplies. Well, that gets to a basic question. What are the results of your study? Well, overall, our study predicts that about 60 of the world's countries would end up in the U.S.-led geopolitical and economic bloc over the next decade or so. That's almost one-third of the the world's countries, which may seem high. However, we think that 
big share makes sense given that the U.S., during its decades as global hegemon, has had a long time to build deep and mutually beneficial relationships with countries around the globe. If you look at our report, the countries we expect to be in the U.S.-led bloc are pretty much what you would expect. They're mostly the rich, highly developed democracies that make up NATO, the European Union, and other U.S. allies. In contrast, we identified 37 countries that seem likely to join the Chinese-led bloc. Those countries, dominated by China itself and Russia, are generally populous but relatively poor, although they also include a lot of major commodity producers. Patrick, your study found that some countries don't clearly fall into one of the two groups but may lean in one direction. You found, for instance, that India, a huge country in terms of geography and population, probably leans toward China. I was a little surprised by this, knowing that uh, China and India have different governments, that India's political system does seem closer to the U.S. in terms of its structure. Also, that the two countries, China and India, have engaged in some border clashes. Why does India lean toward China? Well, India is a great example of how our method works. First, India isn't a member of NATO or the EU, and it doesn't have any mutual defense or free trade agreement with the U.S. or the rest of the U.S.-led bloc. In contrast, it is a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is a security and military alliance dominated by China, and its political and economic freedoms are significantly weaker than in most of the rest of the U.S.-led bloc. In other words, India doesn't have the same amount of glue holding it with the U.S. as other countries in the U.S.-led bloc. It's true that India relies relatively little on exports to China, but it is probably more influenced by those regional political and security ties than by its economic relationships. That's probably why India has taken a stance toward the Russia-Ukraine war that's closer to China's than the U.S.'s. Also, Saudi Arabia falls into this China-leading group. Why? Well, for Saudi Arabia, our methodology suggests that the key issue is its high dependency on exporting oil to China. Saudi Arabia isn't a member of the SCO and has a political and cultural system that's far from that of China, so it's not solidly in the Chinese bloc. However, its economy is driven by energy exports, and China is a major customer, so we think it would lean toward supporting that grouping. Where does Europe fit in? Is there a possibility that this region might emerge as a third major grouping? As a first cut, we score most European countries as being solidly in the U.S. bloc. However, Europe also has the potential to split off into its own group if certain leaders, such as French President Macron, can convince the rest of the Europeans to build its own strategic autonomy in terms of military, political, and economic power. The jury's still out on this, but we see it as a potential development down the road. Patrick, when you compare the two groups, the two major groups as a whole, there appear to be major differences in population, economic power, and natural resources. Could you review some of these differences? Sure. First, we think the Chinese-led bloc would be very populous. 
in large part because it includes China itself. The China block would alone include about one-third of all people on Earth. The China block and the China-leaning block together would account for about two-thirds of the Earth's population, while the U.S. and the U.S.-leaning blocks together would only include about a fourth. However, the China and China-leaning blocks would consist of countries that are much poorer. We estimate they would only account for about one-third of the global economy. Economy. We estimate that the average per capita GDP in that block totaled less than $15,000 in 2021 versus more than $40,000 in the U.S.-led block. In other words, the China-affiliated countries will be much poorer than the U.S.-affiliated ones, which is where the bulk of the world's income, wealth, and economic demand will be. On the other hand, the China-affiliated countries will be where the bulk of the key commodities are found, and that will likely lead to significant tensions. Does this trend toward two major world groups mean that U.S. investors will have fewer opportunities for growth in the future? Yes, I think so. The key point is that these evolving blocks will erect more barriers to trade, to capital, and to migration than we've all seen in the golden age of globalization over the last few decades. You can already see that in the way that the U.S. has imposed new tariff and national security barriers against Chinese exports in recent years, and how the U.S. has erected impediments to U.S. investors wanting to buy Chinese stocks. Fortunately, the world's richest countries and its biggest stock markets will likely remain in the U.S.-led bloc, but investors in the U.S. bloc will likely lose some access to investment opportunities in the fast-growing Chinese bloc. Patrick, when, when you've talked about inflation in the past, you've noted anti-inflationary trends in the world, including demographics, that tend to offset long-term moves toward higher prices. Do you feel that inflation is now taking the upper hand long-term? Well, some of the big long-standing factors holding down inflation over the last few decades are still in place, such as slowing population growth and aging populations around the world. However, that's now being largely offset by factors like labor shortages and supply chain disruptions, which could well continue for a long time. If this global fracturing disrupts the U.S. bloc's access to key commodities from other blocks, well, commodities prices are likely to remain elevated and inflation pressures will persist. We're certainly seeing a lot of strength in the dollar these days. Do you think long term, though, the dollar may decline as the world continues to divide into blocks? Although our methodology doesn't score currency usage directly, we think one defining characteristic of each block will be the currencies that are tradable within it and the currencies that its trade is denominated in. Especially after the Western countries shocked the world's central banks by essentially freezing around half of Russia's foreign reserves to punish it for its invasion of Ukraine, the different blocks will also sport differing foreign reserve portfolios, and the China bloc is likely to de-emphasize the dollar. That could put downward pressure on the greenback and on dollar-denominated assets, although we'd still expect the dollar to be the key currency in any U.S.-led bloc. Would a declining dollar just be another reason to favor investments in commodities? 
Yes, since commodities today are often denominated in dollars, any weakening of the greenback would likely contribute to higher commodity prices and higher commodity inflation over time. Finally, Patrick, are there any short-term events that you're watching particularly closely right now as you monitor this trend away from globalization? Well, one thing to watch is how countries respond to any sanctions or trade barriers erected because of the Russia-Ukraine war. For example, if Europe bans imports of Russian energy, will Russia shift its exports more toward the China bloc? On a related note, we should all be watching how central banks adjust their foreign reserve portfolios. If a central bank starts to jettison one or another currency in its foreign reserves, it would probably be a sign that the country is joining one or the other bloc. And finally, as the world keeps struggling to respond to today's new international supply disruptions across many products, we're watching to see if countries start to channel their foreign investment into their own bloc. Thank you, Patrick. To our listeners, if you want to read Patrick's written report on this issue, go to confluenceinvestment.com and click on the bi-weekly geopolitical report tab on the right side of the page near the top. And in that report, you'll see some charts delineating clearly which countries may end up in which block. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice, and this information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. 